David Marr is one of Australia's most respected journalists. He's certainly versatile. He's crossed media platforms working in radio and television and won awards along the way. But it is, of course, in print that Marr has made his mark. Over the last half a century, David has worked for the National Times, the Sydney Morning Herald and Guardian Australia, writing about the life and times of his home country. Mars is a very particular voice on the Australian media landscape. He is by turns eloquent, forensic, ornate, spartan, outrageous, subtle, humorous and furious, but always, always honest. Few have observed and so expertly reflected the many faces of this country for so long. A selection of David's works spanning the last five decades have now been collected into the aptly titled My Country a book of stories, essays and speeches. They've been sorted under headings such as Whitlam, Australia under Howard, Pink Pages and The Writing Trade, covering politics, sexuality, censorship, law and religion and the life of a scribe. During that life, there are few areas of Australian society David Ma has not turned his attention to. We met recently in Sydney and discussed the upcoming election, gay marriage, Pauline Hanson and the Sydney Olympics. Well, I've had a really wonderful time going through my country. In the introduction there you said, I've written hundreds of thousands of words and I'm not sure of the impact that they've made, but I know my country now. What is it that you know exactly? I know that it's very subtle and that its appearance, that its appearance of being straightforward and devil may care to some extent and um, uh, disrespectful of authority and larrikin and unproud of itself and that nearly all of that is rubbish, that it's a very subtle, complex country um, which is dealing with, in a mostly inarticulate way, but is dealing with profound ethical problems um, in coming to terms with itself. And they work their way through in some surprising ways, but they're there all the time. Um, and we are one of the most orderly countries. We are one of the most obedient countries. We are one of the most. Um, we we are increasingly one of the solidly progressive countries of the world. Appallingly badly served by our politics. I was born in 1990 and I had to go straight for Australia under Howard. I was immediately drawn to that. For me, that holds a particular fascination. And for, and for me as well, I'd spent, about a, I'd spent about a decade out of journalism. I'd um, wandered off and um, spent that time writing a biography and then editing the letters of Patrick White. It was the great for me, great experience of my life and great renewing experience of my life. And I came back into it, um, back to journalism, um, to the Sydney Morning Herald in 1996. And so I was there from the start with Howard and deeply fascinated by that um, professional, ruth ruthless, and in my mind, um, uh, I mean, in, in many ways, um, terrible um, national leader, um, he has great achievements to his credit, but a, a terrible inheritance. And we're living in the midst of that now, of course, because it was it was Howard who brought 
race back to Canberra as part of the retail politics of national life. And we have lived with that ever since. And I'm not sure how we ever um, are going to disentangle ourselves from the squalor of that, uh, those aspects of our politics. In reading that section, Australia Under Howard, I was surprised by how much of it is so relevant to, to, to where we are right now. We really still live under his auspices in a way. We do. We do. He was one of, the, he was one of those formative political leaders. Um, Paul Keating used to say, change the prime minister and you change the country. Um, that is complete rubbish. Um, great prime ministers leave an inheritance that you, that you, and by great, I'm not meaning you know, necessarily praise, but, but you live with them. We live for a very long time with Menzies. We live for a very... And we live still with Hawke and Keating. We live with Howard as well. And the last 10 years, in many ways, um, is living with the chaos that um, was brought to government by Kevin Rudd. Pauline makes her first um, appearances here as well. Would you ever have thought that 20 years later you might still be writing about it? Um, I never wrote her off, uh, what people don't generally understand is that, um, firstly, that her real, the, the, the wave that really swept her to power was not fear of Asian immigration, though that was there, and she famously said we're being swamped by Asians. But what it really was, was a remaining and very strong at the time belief in Australia that Indigenous Australians were becoming privileged and being dealt with in exceptional ways that were denied to white people. And that was, that was, that was her real thing. And that was what Howard was... was, was that vein was, was being worked by Howard as well. Um, and I watched her in the years after she lost office. Um, and one of the things that was very clear was that the, the, the havoc that she had wrought in the late 1990s had brought all of the parties together to make sure that they could use every device possible to exclude her from Parliament. And they worked against her in elections. And she was being blocked by very determined um, opponents. Um, it, was a, it was a very bipartisan, tripartisan, quadripartisan o operation to keep her out of office. But that broke down. Um, and it was always going to break that breakdown at some point. So I didn't write her off. Um, and I'm not surprised that we're still dealing with her. Um, she represents a constituency in this country. It's a small constituency, but she represents it. Um, though I have a feeling that she's probably done for now. The, the events of the last week have been, I mean, hilarious. And fascin uh, fascinating. Fascinating. Did you watch her appearance on A Current Affair? I've seen it, yeah. I mean, I, I find it quite mesmerizing in a way. But she is mesmerizing, and that's mm. one of the important things about her. She is a mesmerizing figure. Um, and there is always, of course, the inattention of will she get to the end of the sentence. Um, one of the things about Pauline Hanson is that she doesn't take an in-breath before she starts to talk. And there's always been this, this kind of um, fragility about the woman that is mesmerizing. I, 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 it's a thing that fascinates me that after such a long time, she still can't talk, you know. In, in she still has that frailty of voice, that insecurity of expression. I find that her constituents often express themselves far better than she ever has. This is she, but she knows this plays well. I mean, she, the 
you know, the vulnerable woman who is out there fighting on behalf of the true believers and things. It's a kind of, it's a kind of suburban Joan of Arc um, um, uh, performance, and it plays it plays quite well. But the NRA stuff, the nightclub stuff, um, and the appearance again of Palmer on the scene have all eaten into her constituency. Um, so we will see in a couple of weeks' time whether she's done for. Speaking about that period, you talk about John Howard's ability to not project who we may be, but to, to look at us and recognise who we are. Mm. And in talking about his election, you say that there is a certain rump of Australia, a very conservative one, that is necessary to, to, to gain office. Is that still the case? It's it's a it's a political rule almost as old as time that conservatives need to to, to have um, strong support um, uh, um, in the working class in order to in order to rule Tories in you know in the old to use the old language Tories need working class supporters in order to rule and therefore the appeal to them and the appeal sometimes to um, constituencies. Um, very fearful of race, for instance, fearful of immigration, fearful of the indigenous. Um, that's seen as a necessary strategy in order for, for conservatives to rule. The question that always arises and is really, really vivid in this election is how much of the educated, prosperous, middle-class supporters of the conservative parties, how much of that shit will they cop before they turn elsewhere and vote elsewhere how much of an alliance with one nation how much of the backing of palmer how much of of the grimmer aspects of of liberal party um, policies will they bear and that's a, a very vivid test in this election we'll see maybe they'll maybe they'll cop it maybe it's fine but we'll see in the same essay you say that there are some lines that even the nationals won't cross Twenty years later, does that does that is that line even in sight? Um, Twenty years ago, when Pauline Hanson was here the first time, Ron Boswell, a National Party senator, who might, in some people's minds, have been a kind of a caricature of a National Party bumpkin, Boswell knew that the proper response to Pauline Hanson was opposition. You fought her. You didn't absorb her. You didn't compete on the same basis that she was suggesting for the votes, for those votes. You fought her. Boswell's not around anymore, and the National Party is not fighting her. The National Party is cuddling up to her, and it is one of the most distressing sights in modern politics, I think. It is really distressing. Um, In that same chapter, Australia Under Howard, I was particularly moved by um, Australia's Olympic spirit. I found myself a little wet under the eye um, it was reading such, that one. Such a wonderful time. You were, what, 10 years I old? I was 10, but I, I, I mean, the pomp and circumstance, the whole thing was very vividly in my mind, but I think I absorbed some of the atmosphere of the time as well. Mm. My husband's very fond of saying... That, that was Australia at our best. Kylie Minogue on a giant high heel and Kathy Freeman wrapped in two different flags with a gold medal. That was a peak of sorts. It was. Do you, it was. Do you think the full promise of that 
optimism that I think everyone felt at the turn of the millennium and at the Olympics. Do you think we're enjoying that necessarily now? No, I, I, I don't. Um, the, at the Olympics, there was this... There were small things. The weather was marvellous. The weather was beautiful. Um, the, par, the, the city was... The city of Sydney was so beautiful and alive and crowds i love crowds by the way i've got a thing about crowds and the crowds were friendly and and wonderful and the possibilities seemed endless it was also the year 2000 and the and the turning of the new century had this sense of the possibilities being endless but the politics of australia grind on and they grind on with a strong well organized faction of our political life whose mission is to prevent the future. That is their mission. And they work through all of the political parties. They are in all of the political parties. They're in, they're in the trade union movement. They're in the Labour Party, the Liberal Party, National Party, and of course, you know, out on the fringes of Pauline and things. Um, it is to prevent the future. And Tony Abbott was the Prime Minister for preventing the future. And he came to power after after Labour had, had, um, had made a mess of it, had made a terrible mess of it, and he came to power. And so we're living still with the people who prevent the future. This, this, this um, election, in one way, I think, is whether or, not, um, whether or not we're willing to give the future a go politically. But the high hopes of 2000... God, but you know, on the opening night, there was nearly a historic catastrophe... Uh, the lighting of the... The, re- the, lighting, the lighting of, of the, the torch. torch. Mm-hmm. So the torch was underwater, came mm-hmm. up, Kathy mm-hmm. Freeman lit it, and there it was blazing away, and it had to go up this track to the, to the stand that it would stand on, burning day and night mm-hmm. for the course of the Olympics, and it got stuck. Somebody nipped in behind the water and, and overrode the system and got it to the top, and I am told there was about two seconds of gas left in that ring when it got to the top and ignited the whole thing properly, it was about to go out. Now, I don't think I don't think we could have recovered from that. It was just one of those extraordinary moments. Perhaps one of those uh, Sydney moments as well. I yes, mean, you often talk about Sydney coming right in the end. You know, oh, there's always yes, yeah. <laughs> but capable of such pointless disasters along the way. Oh, hmm. and, and near disasters. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, close shaves. We are a city of close shaves and a city of disasters. Mm. Um, in, in, in talking about Sydney, you say that we all have this optimism of we, we may still get it right. Might we still? Oh, yes, of course. Mm. I mean, you know, on the whole, we do get these things right. But the puzzling thing about Australia is why change is so hard here. And why can a country like New Zealand deal with the future change and the changes that New Zealand has been through over the last 40 or 50 years very very difficult why can they do it and we can't why is it so hard for us but in the end I think we do get it right the thing that is most depressing is the complete logjam around refugee policy and the fact that those men and women are still imprisoned on those islands after all these years and there is no clear political will to get them off. Mm. Um, in the s- same sort of vein, um, in um, Falling in Love Again, your article about um, 
plebiscite, the same-sex marriage plebiscite vote, you say, Australia, we come good in the end. We come good in the end. I think we come good in the end. Um, there's a couple of defining images from that day. You know, everyone r- running down Oxford Street, that was a really special moment. Penny Wong breaking down. But I really remember you, you in Prince, Prince, Prince Alfred, Alfred Park. Park. And openly weeping, but with a kind of anger. There was this furious pleasure on display. Like, was something surprising you? Where was... No, it was, look, it was more complicated than that. So, <laughs> so, right. I mean, a friend of ours had trained her phone camera on me and my partner at this moment. And I just erupted with... Ple- but I was instantly furious. And it was about them... It was about, again, the people who had made this so hard, who'd made it so fucking hard. And the wonder of that vote, 62%, you know, that's 62% of this country who says if we can want to, if we want to, we can marry each other. And the transformation in my lifetime to see a result like that. And so it was, it was, um, it was triumph and fury and what the camera didn't pick up was my cursing. So I was, I, was, I was weeping and cursing and celebrating all at once. Mm. I was in that park as well. Were you? Yeah. And it was pretty good, wasn't it? It was, it was amazing. You know, it's not something that you, that you forget. And, I mean, we all knew what was going to happen, but I, it was like a shield in the few days after that. I mean, I grew up to a different generation to you. I, I carry much less weight when it comes to, you know, that particular thing. But nonetheless, it's it's like I almost dared anybody to say anything in the next few days because I thought, well, actually, this, this country is behind me. There's a number on it. There's there a was number a number on there. It. Yeah. And that's why I know that, that we sh- the country shouldn't have had to be put through that process and gay men and women shouldn't have been put through that process and I cursed the people who put us through that process but at the end of it there was a number Mm. there was an indisputable number and that's as you say a great shield I um, I get the sense when when I'm reading your, your stuff that it starts perhaps from a place of anger. I mean, you write about a lot of injustice. Mm. But when I read it, it feels so calm. There's a clarity that comes with it because it is so calm. Do you find yourself um, uh, accessing that calm before channeling your anger, perhaps? It works sort of slightly around the other way. I mean, anger is anger is a motive. Anger is a reason for doing something. Anger is... Um, can be, can be. I mean, I'm not angry all the time, but I can be very angry. But the job is then to write fairly and dispassionately and with, you hope, some charm and humour um, to bring people with you in the argument. I loathe rage on the page. It's actually something that's very, very hard to do effectively, but I loathe it. Um, and I see my job as an explainer. That's what I do. I'm explaining things. And the ex- explanation needs some calm. Mm. The need to m- explain it 
can be provoked by fury. But when you're sitting there and doing the work and interviewing people, fairness and calm and poise are crucial. The writing itself is calm. And I find myself going along with you because it is calm and it seems like clarity and honest, always honest. Uh, well, you know, you, 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 do, you struggle to be honest. I mean, that's, that's, that's the thing. And, I mean, one of the things I've always thought is that, that the monsters I'm, – I'm fascinated by monsters. I've written a lot about monstrous people. Um, they're only interesting when you get inside their minds – when you actually work out um, as best you can what drives them, what they're thinking, what they're doing. And something I learned early on in journalism, I had a great editor, Max Such, and he said to me one day, if you don't acknowledge the contradictions, you've, lo- you've, you've missed the story. And people are full of contradictions and events and movements and parties and nations, they're full of contradictions. And I'm fascinated by contradictions. And I think contradiction brings subjects and people alive. Speaking about anger, there are flashes every now and then. And I feel like one of them <laughs> yes. was... I um, confess to that. Um, in the aftermath of the Pell verdict, the very final line of your Guardian article, which is anger, I think, total anger that this man had for so long um, proselytized. and made his whole career from publicly espousing the toughest imaginable version of the Catholic rules of sex. And while he was doing it at the last line, while he was forcing little boys to suck his penis. It was, yeah, fury. But, I mean, I suppose... I have a lifelong fury as a gay man of having watched these people trying to preserve the criminal punishment of homosexuality. When when I was your age, there was an eight-year, six-year or eight-year prison sentence for having sex. Prison sentence. And churchmen were up and down the corridors of the New South Wales Parliament to keep it that way. Not just Catholics, but the Church of England in Sydney were as bad or worse. And then, you, you know, even then you knew it was hypocritical and you knew it was cruel and, and pointless. And then all these years later, you find the same institutions, not necessarily the same people, but the same institutions were the ones who were sheltering pedophiles in their own ranks. And there's just... You know, there aren't words to express contempt for that. I don't think... It, it feels like a, a lot of your writing, at least the stuff that I've read, has been focused on that in, inordinate influence of those moralizers in, in Australia's life for mm. so long and, and continuing. And it's interesting that, you know, Howard is such a religious man and, 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 and Abbott was, is such a religious man and we may yet again uh, elect a very deeply religious, religious man. man in Scott Morrison. Um, I sort of, I'd sort of came back to this subject by a, by a path that is now kind of um, thankfully almost irrelevant. When I got back from my Patrick White decade and it was, in the, it was um, at the Sydney Morning Herald... 
censorship was this huge issue. I mean, the censoring, the censoring of um, television and magazines and not books so much by this time, but movies were still movies were still being banned. This, the, the apparatus of censorship, and I wrote a lot about the apparatus of censorship and the way in which it was principally driven by religious um, bodies and the way in which they had infiltrated political parties in order to make sure that these rules of propriety were inflicted on the Australian people. Now, the internet has made all of that irrelevant. It's just it's solved all of those problems um, for us. Um, but that brought me back to this to the to the business of you know looking at the politics of faith because politics isn 't just about money it 's also about faith and it 's about fear and the manipulation of fear it 's about hope and the manip- manipulation of hope um, and that brought me back in in the late 1990s to looking at at the power of the faiths and I think it 's proved quite a worthwhile investment. <laughs> Um, you've watched for a, uh, a long time. You continue to watch. What I find a lot of your writing from back in the day prescient. But what has surprised you? Oh, that vote. You know, sixty-two percent. That's pretty good. Mm. That's pretty good. I mean, it didn't kind of. There are things that you never imagine is going to happen. I mean, you know, as a young man, I could never have imagined the notion that society would approve. Gay men marrying each other, gay women marrying each other. I just, it's unimaginable. And unimaginable things keep happening. I mean, the election of Donald Trump, unimaginable that he remains so astonishingly popular and powerful in the United States. Also unimaginable. Um, but making us imagine and making us pay attention and making us learn. Um, uh, things that didn't surprise, you know. Howard was not a surprise after after um, after the sort of the opening to the world of Hawke and Keating, but that it's had such a profound effect on Australia. Yes, a surprise. Um, the collapse of Rudd was a surprise. I mean, he was such a comet. He was a comet shooting across the political sky. I did a lot of writing about Rudd. It's a fascinating character, and his downfall, a great surprise. And I think also the absolute logjam of the last decade of Australian politics, that it has remained in logjam for so long, is a surprise. But again, um, it's a surprise that makes us pay attention and look more closely at the at the country in which we live, at our country. Um, as I said at the start, and as you say at the start of your book, you know your country now. Can you ever imagine coming to unknow it? Do you ever think that Australia could change so much that it may become unrecognisable to you again? I have to be clear that my country is not a country... I mean, there are things I don't understand about Australia, but my country is not deeply concerned, I must say, with economics. And My country is... You know, the sport is, is, you know, a bit outside the boundaries of my particular country. Um, I don't think that countries profoundly change. And for all our problems, and, you know, bring up the violins, and I suppose this is me being my optimistic self, this is a pretty decent place. It's, it's, it's a place that wants to engage usefully with the future. We're basically a progressive, but not radically progressive country. Um, we're a good place. Um, and I don't, 
I don't think those fundamentals are going to change. We're going to fight a lot about the expression of those values and we're going to fight a lot about, um, you know, facing difficult things in the future. Climate change is something that is a really difficult thing to face, but I'm absolutely confident we'll get it right. But when? (laughs) (laughs) But when? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.